Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Okay, this is Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. I'm the host, Brady Huggett, and our guest for this episode is Carl Feldbaum. Carl was the founding president of the Biotechnology Industry Organization, otherwise known as BIO. He joined in 1993, and he he was the head of it until 2005 when he stepped away. We talked about that on this podcast. We also talked about his life before BIO, which was um, equally as interesting. He was an assistant district attorney in Philadelphia focused on corruption. He helped prosecute the Watergate scandal. Um, He told me a great story about meeting Saddam Hussein which not many people can, can say that, or at least not many people that I know can say that. Right, so this is a little long for us. It's, it's a little over an hour. I was looking for ways to maybe trim it back, but I had trouble. Almost everything in the conversation seemed of interest to me, and uh, I, I hope it's of interest to you. So I will have more to say on the backside of this, but for now, here it is, your First Rounders podcast with Carl Feldbaum. So yeah, you you flew in. You said you flew in. Yeah, flew in, and uh, you know, rainy Saturday, and got to my hotel, and just uh, you know, get used to the little time difference, and walk around the streets a bit. Yeah, and how long are you gonna be? You gonna be? I'm here? gonna be here till Wednesday. Then I fly to Boston for another board meeting. Which which company is that? Uh, Exelixis, South yeah. San Francisco. Yeah, I know them. So they meet uh, once or twice a year in Bo- in Boston. And so you still sit on those boards? I do, and I'm on. I'm chair of. Uh, uh, Life Sciences Foundation, right. and I'm on the board of uh, BioVentures for Global Health. Oh yeah, I forgot. Yeah. Okay. So, well, staying let's, busy. Let's. Um, I've flunked retirement you did, several yeah. times. I, I do remember when you um, when you left when you left Bio. You know, people are like, well, well what are you going to do? And you're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Idaho and think about it for a while. And exactly. uh, it's like that's you thought you were I, out, and they pulled you back in. That's what I did. Yeah. Thought about it. Uh, Someone told me the uh, first thing I should do is sit down and read War and Peace, um, which I did. Yeah. And then uh, I, I, by the time I was through with that, I was thinking about what to do next. And it was winter in Idaho and very cold. And right. I had a couple of uh, some longstanding invitations to join boards, which I could not do while I was at Bio. Yeah. And since we represent the whole industry, and then I decided to uh, to jump back in. And I. Oh, is that in the uh, is that in, in like the the bylaws of running bio? You cannot sit on boards. Yeah, it was one of the things we made up. I mean, you know, we made up the the whole sort of the constitution of the organization. Right. 
and you could not invest in a single company if you were an employee. Makes sense. Nor could you, uh, you know, join a board. You had to represent the whole industry and not, yeah, yeah, yeah. not, not have your special personal. interest in one company. Um, but you did you did not grow up in Idaho. No, I think you... you I grew up, uh, I like to say I grew up in the West. I grew up in West Philadelphia. And, um, uh, so, I, you know, I grew up there and uh, uh, went to high school there and intended to become a physician. Oh, really? Yeah, through uh, high school as a science major. And then I majored in biology in, in college. In Princeton? Yes. Yeah, I saw that. But so why, why um, you know, why were you in, in Philadelphia? Was your, your family from there? Yeah, my family came from uh, directly from uh, Belarus and the Ukraine to Philadelphia oh, yeah? for some reason. And uh, my grandparents. Right. And uh, my parents uh, and grandparents had a produce business, fruits and vegetables, and uh, which we were dissuaded. I'm one of four boys. And we were dissuaded from going into the family business, so each of us had to, do, you know, find something else to do. And uh, when asked as a kid, you know, I was the oldest uh, uh, child and the oldest grandchild, what I wanted to do when I grew up, I could never hit on something that satisfied them until I said I wanted to be a doctor. And they said, that's the one. And that's the one. So I grew up and then uh, thinking I was going to be a doctor, forgetting I just said it to be, uh, to, to get them off my back. Right. And... Um, then I, when I was in uh, junior in college, I actually faced uh, uh, some decisions of uh, medical school, law school, or Vietnam. And uh, at the time, uh, uh, the woman was, I, was, I was dating that later became my wife, uh, her father was a very distinguished constitutional lawyer. And uh, his uh, dinner time, uh, dinner table stories about arguing cases in front of the U.S. Supreme Court and criminal law and constitutional law really got my attention. And I'd switched from uh, an ambition from going to medical school, and I, I went to law school. How did your parents take that news? Uh, that was okay. Not as good as uh, going to medical school, but yeah. uh, that was uh, my choice. Right. You didn't, it's not like you told them you're going to become a street musician or something. Law school was still a, a career that... Uh, yeah, something they, you know, I, if I'd had uh, my way, I would have become perhaps a, you know, a marine biologist or right. something. No, law school, and then I... Uh, in law school, I got very involved in constitutional law and criminal law, and one of my professors was uh, Arlen Specter, who was then district attorney of Philadelphia, and he uh, actually uh, he taught a, a court. He was a fearsome professor, as well as district attorney, as uh -huh. well as senator later. Right. And uh, uh, I was in a 12-person seminar, Problems of Prosecution, and uh, all of us were sort of cowering because he'd call on one of us and uh, grill us. And, and I had to think, well, I could be in Vietnam. And this, is, uh, <laughs> this could be worse. This could be worse. Yeah. He later hired me, and I was an assistant district attorney in Philadelphia. Right, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but you, so your, your grandparents came from Belarus, for, I, I'm assuming for the manufacturing positions or something in, in Philly, right? I mean, that's, these cities draw people. Uh, no, they were, uh, uh, they were essentially fleeing uh, uh, religious oppression, uh, Russian, the Russian Empire and the Tsarist uh, pogroms, uh, in the very you know edge of the Western uh, Russian Empire, and I think got to Hamburg and got on a boat and perhaps had a relative who landed in Philadelphia oh, before them. Probably and they man. were they were peddlers. Started as peddlers um, with you know fruits and stuff you can carry on your back, right. and then graduated to push carts, and then uh, in my father's generation. Um, he was the first to go to college and uh, had sort of wider and uh, broader ambitions. So from the pushcart, eventually they had their own storefront. Uh, they were uh, wholesalers. Uh, they became wholesalers. So they 
um, got carloads, railroad cars of uh, fruits and vegetables from the south and the west, Texas, carrots, lettuce, uh, citrus fruits, uh -huh. and sold them to grocery. They sold them to grocery stores and supermarkets. I see. Yeah, and my family migrated. Uh, I was born in South Philadelphia, actually. We moved to West Philadelphia, uh, where I lived, and then eventually uh, out to the suburbs. Before you had decided that you were going to go to medical school, you were studying biology because you liked it? Uh, I was studying essentially biology. I did like biology. I did not uh, care so much for uh, chemistry. And uh, I, I had noticed, during, particularly during my uh, uh, Princeton University years, uh, I was pretty inept in the laboratory and uh, did not do that well with my experiments, uh, burn my clothes, this sort of thing. <laughs> Really inept, and it just—it uh, was very clear that that was not a direction that would be good for me. Right. So, do you think you know? Let's just pretend that you had um, pursued medical school and gone on. Do you, do you think that you're a better fit for law than you were for for being a physician? Yeah, it turned out I'd probably unfit for either of them. Uh, you know, I only ended up—I had an interesting law career, but it yeah. only lasted about seven years. Yeah. But um, so. You get out of Princeton with your biology degree. You make this decision, you know, okay, I'm actually going to switch and go to law school. You go to Penn for law yeah, school? Yeah, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, my hometown law yeah. school. Yep. And that's where I met uh, Specter and got uh, pretty deeply interested. During the uh, late 60s, early 70s, there was a, uh, kind of a, the Warren Supreme Court revolution in criminal law with defendants' rights. And mm -hmm. It was a very interesting time to be involved in, uh, in, in law. And uh, as prosecutors, we had more discretion over how cases would be handled than defense counsel, and it was a good uh, that was a good fit for me, and, and I did that for a couple of years. And so this is when you were assistant DA, you're saying? Yeah, I was in court just about every day. And what, what kind of cases were you seeing? Well, I was a junior uh, DA, and at first they you know assigned me to traffic court, so I'd get 20 files the night before and have to walk into a courtroom. The, the interesting part of that was not necessarily the running of stop signs or red lights, but it was the ability to organize a courtroom. I'd walk into in the, in, into the courtroom in the morning and all these um, de well, defendants and uh, their lawyers and uh, counsel were uh, meandering around the courtroom. And my job was to, as soon as the judge came from behind the curtain and sat down, I had to have that, start mess, right in. that mess organized. Say, you know, Your Honor, we're going to start with... Uh, uh, Ivan Cohen versus uh, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania versus Ivan Cohen. Oh, that's that's interesting. So it was sort of your job to run the courtroom for the prosecution um, all, all day long. All day long, right. and it was you know it's part of the the, the prosecution needs to prove a, you know, make a case and right. prove a case. So you were in that position, and it, the organizational part of that was almost as interesting as the legal part. And I did m what they call motions court, which were in serious cases like homicides or uh, robberies or, or whatever. Um, there would be motions to exclude evidence based on the fact that it was illegally obtained, mm -hmm. and um, much of it was actually. And so, how so? You mean coerced? Yeah, coerced confessions. Yeah. Uh, Philadelphia in those days, uh, during the, if I may say, the Frank Rizzo administration, uh -huh. uh, was not well known for the, uh, the same kind of issues that unfortunately were again experiencing uh, today as they speak here in New York and right. Ferguson, Missouri, et cetera. So it's recycled or it never stopped. But uh, there was also a, a heroin epidemic in Philadelphia. Again, uh, and, right? Yeah. So, I mean, we just right. talked about this is happening now. Heroin. Exactly. Right, yep. 
Exactly. Um, so uh, there, there were uh, little uh, flying bags of white powder all over, and uh, sometimes the police story did not uh, exactly match up. I see. So in, in that period of time, uh, I mean, what's one of the most interesting cases that you, you still remember today? Well, what happened is I, I finally got out of, uh, when, when I mentioned uh, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania versus Ivan Cohen, he was a high school classmate of mine. Oh, really? So occasionally I got to, uh, I got to mishandle or <laughs> let off one of my f- friends who'd, uh, who'd, I think, run a red light or something. But uh, <laughs> the interesting part was— I thought you'd, be, you'd, you'd need to recuse yourself from that. Uh, the, actually, in the, in, the, in the better of all worlds, I should have. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. It was an, an indiscretion for sure. Ah. <laughs> um, so we just, we just got that on tape. Good. So you got your friend out of a running a, a yeah, traffic stop. Yeah. He was a professor, actually. Uh, oh. I believe of mathematics. Sorry, Ivan. Um, but um, and a, sort of an absent-minded professor. And I really – I tried to do my – I threatened him. Yeah. You know. And, uh, and told him to, to pay attention. At our 50th high school reunion, I met him, and uh, he he reminded me, or I reminded him, of that occasion. And I asked him whether he still had a driver's license, and he did not answer. Oh, really? Oh. Anyhow. <laughs> but the, the more interesting part, uh, I think, of the uh, experience as a prosecutor, not only sort of the disillusionment with the, the criminal justice system at that time— huh. Um, was uh, I got moved into uh, um, corruption cases in Philadelphia, and uh, Philadelphia it was like shoot, a bit like shooting fish in a barrel, and uh, municipal corruption, huh. and that led to my being hired by Archibald Cox for the Watergate cases because uh, I had that kind of some of that kind of experience. Did not fit into the the type of activities that we found at Watergate, but it was close close, close enough. Right. Yeah, but that's. So that's interesting. You were, you were, I mean, you were in D.C. for that, right? You must have matriculated yep. to D.C. at I did. some point. Yeah. Before that or right? No, I was in Philadelphia. And uh, I was in, uh, I went, I was conducting uh, preliminary hearings in prison when um, I got uh, a call from the deputy special prosecutor, Hank Ruth, who had also been a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And um, he, I'd read his name in the paper that he'd just right. become... Uh, deputy special prosecutor, and I actually called him. And um, he said it was on a Friday afternoon. I called him from my kitchen phone, and I, he said, well, uh, we're looking for uh, – we need prosecutors, and we're hiring. When can you come down? I said, how about Monday? Oh, so this – you were aware of it, and you said maybe I can help. Or yeah, oh, exactly. Great. So I volunteered yeah, – I kind of volunteered myself to, yeah. you know, to, to go uh, to Washington, and I took the train down, and – Oh, that Monday afternoon, I interviewed with Archibald Cox and Henry Ruth and a couple of his uh, uh, senior associates, and I got hired. But so then you moved to D.C. Absolutely. Uh, you know, tore up a newly signed uh, apartment lease and tried to figure out what to do. And uh, Were you married at that point? Yeah, and uh, my wife and I you know, both gave up our no kids yet. current jobs. No kids. No huh. kids. So no kids. You and your wife moved to D.C. to sort right. of a brand so new start. This didn't made over, you know, over the weekend. And then uh, moved probably 10 days later. And that's not – I mean you moved into D.C. And right into the most um, – uh, Parachuted uh, right into the largest in the middle of it, yeah. scandal crisis of that of the 20th century, I think. Still one of the largest. I mean – I think it is. So I, I wanted to ask you about that too. Let's talk – we can talk about how you um, – you know, what you, what you did for the prosecution or what you found out. But, you know, people look back and sort of think that um, – 
that that was like a low point of American politics. And I often wondered if that's the case or is this just the one time that it sort of got caught and, and both sides do these sorts of political spying? I think it was, I actually think it was a low point and not just because I participated and was there, but because we have tapes. Yeah. I think what distinguishes Watergate from uh, previous and some and later some later activity, all the gates, you know, right. that been you know many micro scandals. Everything's named Gate. Right. So that was sort of the, the granddaddy of of them all. The, one of the things that distinguished it was, was thousands of hours of White House tape recordings, which really uh, disclosed the nature of Nixon's presidency. The kind of meanness. It was mean, right? Yeah. Of it. Yeah. The bias, the bigotry, the revenge, the getting even part. That's still there. That's going to be there in the National Archives. And that, that won't go away. And that, you know, aside from the actual, the, the, the meanness and the intentional, the intention led into acts of, uh, of criminality. I mean, a burglary team right. resident in the White House. Yeah. For one, uh, wiretaps and and uh, so let, let's talk about this. You, you're you're hired. You yeah. move to D.C. You don't really have any idea what you're going to find yet, and you start um, un- unearthing these these examples. Uh, I was 20, you know, 28 years old, uh, 28, 29, uh-huh. and uh, what happened my first day? Um, it was uh, July, I believe, it was July 16, 1973. I was signing in uh, the federal papers and all that uh, bureaucratic stuff. And I looked up, and there was this little grainy black and white television uh, that was televising the Senate Watergate hearings. And it was that day that a, a White House uh, employee named Alexander Butterfield disclosed that there was a White House taping system. Hmm. And so everything changed from a, you know, from an evidentiary point of view. We're not going to just have to rely on the testimony of then John Dean, the president's uh, counsel. There are tapes. And so the afternoon of my first day, I went in, I was called into uh, Archibald Cox's office along with a couple other people, including Stephen Breyer, who now sits on the Supreme Court. Uh-huh. Actually, overall, much more distinguished crew than I, uh, for sure. And um, discussed whether to subpoena the tapes, which, uh, as a young prosecutor, I thought was a foregone conclusion. Right. But uh, Cox uh, took us through. Uh, the fact that at, at the end of a series of cases in the federal courts, which we expected to go up to the U.S. Supreme Court and hope to win, but even if we won unanimously, what if Nixon refused to turn over the tapes? We just it created a constitutional crisis that was right. uh, unprecedented. And uh, none of us knew the answer of what to do. And uh, he called us back about three hours later and told us he just wanted us to think about it. But, of course, we were going to subpoena the tapes. Right. And at the end of that, we did win the Supreme Court uh, case, and I happened to be sitting in uh, – Cox had been fired during the Saturday Night Massacre, you know, so-called. Uh-huh. And uh, I was sitting across from Leon Jaworski, the next special prosecutor, when Alexander Haig, the president's chief of staff, called, called Jaworski and said the tapes were ready to be picked up. So I, I volunteered to do that on Saturday morning, and um, – I was wearing my uh, then fashionable bell bottoms. I looked like somebody off the cover of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band right, yeah. album. Mm-hmm. And I uh, I went uh, walked the four or five blocks of White House, and um, walked through the line of tourists waiting to get in and and uh, for their for their 
weekend experience uh -huh. and um, went into the council's office. Fred Bizarre was the, then the president's council, and he had a cardboard box with nine tapes and uh, handed it over to me. And I said, You walked that, away. Well, I said, shouldn't we have a receipt for this? And he said, he was sort of absent-minded. I mean, I think he knew that the game was up. Uh -huh. He'd obviously listened to what was on the tapes. And, yep. uh, so we drew up handwritten receipts, uh, countersigned them, signed them, countersigned them, handed them over, and I just walk out through this crowd of Saturday tourists with a box. Of That's tapes. amazing. So and I, I walked back to the office, and my colleagues, a few of them were, knew that I was on this kind of mission, and uh, sat down, and we put on headsets, and I asked one of my colleagues, which tape, you know, should we listen to first? And he said, you know, the, the I think it was December 21, 1972, John Dean says a meeting with the president, there's a cancer on the presidency. So we, you know, put on the headsets, and sure enough, seven minutes into the tape, there it is, and there is the president, uh, President Nixon, saying that he could pay off, he could get the money to pay off the burglars, huh. the hush money. And we knew at that point that uh, his presidency was going to be over. Right. But, you know, we were subject to all kinds of rules of secrecy, grand jury secrecy. I mean, what did you think when you found that? It's, you didn't look very long, and here's a damning piece of evidence. Well, one of my colleagues looked out the window. It had been in Chile recently and said, where are the tanks? He could not believe that the president had just handed over the instruments of his own undoing. Right, yeah. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah, it, was, it was a remarkable moment for sure. Yeah, I would say probably the most memorable moment of your life thus far. It would have to be. One of them, certainly. Good. What, what are the others? My God. Well, some, are, some will always go untold. But uh. <laughs> Okay, good. All right. But it, 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 um, it almost boggles the mind to look back and think that these tapes, which are sort of like the linchpin of democracy of the moment, and you're just carrying them in a box down the street. I mean, today yeah. they'd send armored cars and yeah. ten people. Where were the? Where, where were the? Where's the media? Exactly. Following me, or where were the? There may have been. Where are the representatives of foreign intelligence uh, agencies? Yeah. Right. And it's, I'm just blithely, you know, I'm just going through town and uh, carrying, carrying a this box, cardboard box. You know, I thought the the people in line at the White House must, must have thought I was a kind of a plumber yeah, with a spare out, part for one of the toilets. They're cleaning out the trash cans from yeah. upstairs or something. But, but, but interestingly, getting more to the scientific side of, uh, of Watergate, I was one of the only prosecutors who had uh, a science, some yeah. science background. So when there was an 18-and-a-half-minute gap in a White House tape, which is one of the tapes, there was a key tape. It was the first meeting that the President Nixon had after the break-in with uh, one of his aides, H.R. Uh, Haldeman, um, there was this strange, mysterious gap in a key part of the conversation. So 18 minutes of silence. Buzz. There buzz. Was a buzz, yeah. And we decided that uh, we had to look into that, and I was uh, kind of uh, selected to conduct, to not conduct, supervise the investigation of the 18-and-a-half-minute gap and put together a team of scientists who knew new stuff, I mean, and knew about tape recorders, uh, audio uh, all, all, technology, all, every aspect yeah. of audio technology at the time. You know, folks from uh, MIT and Harvard and Stanford, University of Utah, there was a guy named Tom Stockham. So people had all you know, various types of expertise, and they eventually... Um, came up with a report that indicated that it was uh, an intentional erasure. 
of the tape made by this particular recorder that the president and his secretary, Rosemary Woods, had. So did we ever find out what those 18 minutes were? Never. Wow. And apparently to this day, the technology does not allow us to recover that. But so they're in some room and they go, well, Carl, you study biology. You get a team together to go. I said, you know, you need, you know, physicists and, and you know, electronic engineers here. Yeah. And I said, well, well you take care we of don't it. have that. You know, you figure it out. Okay. So what happens? So Nixon's out of the White House. What happens or what happens to you next? Well, I, uh, again, I had, uh, among my responsibilities at Watergate was also to look into allegations that the intelligence community had been involved in certain Watergate offenses. In fact, um, the CIA had given disguises, helped them, helped the original Watergate burglars with some disguises and previous break-in, et cetera. But then there were deeper theories that uh, Richard Helms, who was director of the CIA, had a vendetta against Nixon, and it was sort of a CIA coup of the presidency and the president, which was not the case, uh-huh. to be clear. And I was uh, sort of, in that one, I was not the, uh, I was not just chosen. I volunteered for that one. That seemed fascinating. So I, I got into, I got all these clearances, and I got into national security affairs through that sort of back door. And then later, much, uh, not much later, but I got hired uh, to be inspector general for intelligence again at the White House, yeah. at, no, at the Pentagon, excuse That's me, right. to prevent the kinds of abuses that we are again seeing. Yeah, you're at the Pentagon. What, what are you doing and how long did this go on? Uh, that went on for four years and I remained fascinated with national security affairs and started my own company. This is my startup uh, experience, a company named Palomar Corporation, oh, yeah. uh, which was hired to do um, national security studies. Then it was, um, it was the so- U- U.S. Soviet Union. I did studies of uh, basically related to arms control negotiations, the SALT negotiations, SALT one and two mm-hmm. negotiations that were that were going on to allow what would allow us to verify, um, you know, the agreements and and what would not. So again, it was sort of using <laughs> biology background. Forgive me, yeah, you know, um, but to uh, get into some of the more technical aspects and to bridge the pretty wide gap between negotiators who are, you know, political scientists and, um, you know, cold warriors mm-hmm. with some with the science and vice versa, you know, indicate to the scientists what the, what really the clear needs were of the of ne- negotiators, what they needed to know. This is uh, I'm, I'm guessing here, but this is where the book Looking the Tiger in the Eye came from. This That's right. Right. In the 80s, I, I, the, there were lots of demonstrations, nuclear disarmament. Uh-huh. Etc. And um, you know the basic Cold War fear that we right. just blow ourselves up. Um, and uh, I decided to take on the try to write a book for young people. My own children uh, were not quite teenagers at the time, but getting there. Yeah. And we're asking questions about the the, the bomb. And so yeah, because uh, you know we, we were having things like. Um, you know, bomb drills at, at school, yeah. you know, just in case some sort of... Crawl nuclear... under your desk. That's right, yeah. Right? Uh, put your head between your legs right. and uh, whistle Dixie. Right, right. <laughs> as, um, the, as the radiation waves yeah. come through the school. So, yeah, so I took took some time, and, and that was... Uh, I'm glad I did it. Uh, with a, I wrote it with a co-author. Uh, it did it did pretty well for a while. Yeah, New York Times Book of the Year. Yeah, it was, one of the new, books of it the was year. one of the books of the year, one... Uh, a Christopher Medal, uh, which was very nice, and then um, and then book sales plummeted when the Soviets folded on me. Really, 
They ruined right. it. When, they the wall, ruined when, it when the wall came down, that was the end of oh. uh, people thought the nuclear threat was over, which, of course, it's not. Yeah. Uh, okay, so that, that brings us... I mean, we're, we're getting close to the formation of bio, right? Yeah, we are. We got one one more step. What's what's the step? And that was uh, uh, I was playing uh, squash with Arlen Specter, which uh-huh. was our habit throughout the years. He, he had become senator in 1980, and um, while I was uh, I was at the Pentagon and I was uh, you know at Palomar, and uh, one one time during uh, I I was about to sell Palomar, and um, which I did. He asked he he asked me whether I would. Uh, consider coming on as chief of staff in the Senate. So I said, you know, I'd never even been a staff member in the Senate, much less chief of staff, but he and I knew each other very well. Right. And I agreed, uh, not knowing really what to do after the book I published, and that was a big effort, and then uh, merging Palomar, I actually really did not know what to do next. And mm-hmm. I agreed to come on as chief of staff, which was uh, a wonderful catbird seat, um, a perch, uh, to do all kinds of uh, both international and domestic, uh, get involved in international domestic issues. Uh, he was on the Appropriations Committee, on the Senate Intelligence Committee, and so I took a pretty uh, active chief of staff role in, you know, in that in that range of issues. And this sort of allows you, I'm assuming, to um, you got a good view of what how Washington works, yeah, right? and the ins and outs of what you need to do to get things done. For sure, and I think that would be really helpful for you later as. When, you know, when it was formed. critical. It was critical. Um, not necessarily the part that people would imagine of how the Senate itself works, and but really, um, I, I, I worked with Specter for for four years uh-huh. as chief of staff, and we we had some amazing. I had some amazing event, adventures with him. I mean, spending two hours with Saddam Hussein, for really? example, in Baghdad, and. Um, it's a little off the subject, but no, no, that's way interesting, though. So um, you know, in Al Assad in uh, Bash, you know, not Bashir, uh, Hafez, his uh-huh. father, in Damascus, uh, events like that uh, occurred, as well as the day-to-day life of the Senate, and all the the issues, uh, many of which we're still wrestling with: gun control, for example, uh, terrorism. It's funny how these things that were it seemed like on the tip of change. 20, 30 years are still not changed. That's right. I guess the, that probably also says something about, well, not Washington, or maybe Washington. No, I'd say it's suddenly about human nature. I mean, uh, people don't really don't read history, don't learn from history. We're pretty dug in. Pretty dug some... in. I mean, every new administration comes in to the White House and throws out everything that reminds them of the, of the old, old administration, including what might have been uh, really useful. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that so the just briefly because it is interesting the Saddam Hussein meeting, how, well, what was that like? I mean, just just from um, an observer's point of view, that have to be. Yeah, well, I, I mean, we're at the, uh, I'm asleep. We're asleep. The de- delegation, it was just Specter and um, one other senator, and uh, and myself, um, and we were uh, sleeping at the Al Rashid Hotel about two in the morning. This uh, knock on the door that Saddam will see us now. And wake up, put on our clothes, jump into his black Mercedes uh-huh. turbos, and speed across downtown Baghdad in the middle of the night, and uh, um, really speed. And then at a certain point, just screech to a halt, turn around, and say, "Saddam, busy? Not you know, not going to see you now." We go back at you know, get back in bed. I mean, it, that just must be power trip stuff. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. psychological warfare. Yeah, yeah. 
And then um, again, of course, like an hour and a half later, knock on the door, see you now. And we jump back in the cars, and this time we go to this uh, uh, palace that uh, lit up, uh, kind of ice blue, eerie, has tank traps and a moat. So <laughs> it was medieval, mm-hmm. really medieval, actually. And uh, and uh, there's a little backstory. I mean, uh, part of our routine at any of these foreign visits, I would carry Spectre's, he'd hand me his little brownie camera, and at some point during the meeting, I would stand up and take pictures for right. us, and we'd hang on the wall mm-hmm. in the office, etc. And um, I had the camera, and as I went into Saddam's palace, one of his guards kind of roughly grabbed me by the wrist and tore the camera out of my hand, and um, uh, and then went on to a waiting room, and, uh, you know, waiting in there, and Spectre notices, and where's my camera? And I said, you know, the guard took it. He said, in in typical Spectre fashion, I didn't give you permission to give away my camera. (laughs) I said, you know, we're in Baghdad, and I'll buy you a better camera when we get back to Philadelphia. Right. And uh, he was having none of it, and uh, it was his property. And he had a point to make, and Saddam wasn't going to take anything from him. And um, so he made me, what made me, I argued with with the guard, then argued with the guard supervisor, then his supervisor, and pretty much got nowhere. And then we were waiting for about 45 minutes, and all of a sudden this wall opens up and reveals Saddam walking down this blind corridor, backlit by his own TV crew, and he's carrying the camera in his hand. And he, he turns to Spectre and says, here's, my, here's your camera, take my picture. And Spectre refuses to do so. Uh, are you serious? That's a great story. That's a just maybe a few words about Spectre because you know his his persona is he's, he's uh, beloved and, and tenacious, and that story sort of suggests both. A of very those hard case. I mean, he's a dear friend of mine, yeah, and a mentor, a great mentor, and a great friend. Um, but you know, grew up. Uh, his father was a junk dealer in Russell, Kansas, and um, youngest kid, he was sent out to cut down with an oxyacetylene torch, uh, oil derricks in the field that blown down you know, from uh, uh, tornadoes. For the metal, right? To, yeah, yeah, for the scrap. And uh, it, very it, tough. And uh, then, you know, got to go to University of Pennsylvania and then Yale Law School. A very brilliant guy, um, but uh, very difficult human, you know, human being tough, very tough, very exacting on his staff which was a great learning experience, of course, if you could take it. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, to his credit, he held himself to the same or higher standards. So it wasn't unfair. Yeah. It was just difficult. Okay, so, so yeah. now. So I'm in inspector's bio. office, actually, and I uh, had some, you know. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The great experiences moving out in Baghdad and Damascus and also all through Pennsylvania. And um, it was time for me to leave. He won re-election in 1992. Uh And I had, again, no idea what to do professionally. My kids were now... Uh, in private school, uh, my wife was about to go back to work uh-huh. and just had to pay the bills. And uh, so I actually noticed uh, someone brought to my attention a journal of uh, CEO positions that were open. I had never known of the journal. And there was, uh, on the, you know, the, the head of the Des Moines public library system, not for me, um, and, and then something bio, some biotechnology industry organization looking for president, CEO. And it uh, read like the, the combination of science and politics, Washington. I said, yeah, that's perfect. That's exactly right. So I immediately picked up the phone and I called the, the, the search, uh, executive search person and said, you know, look, I just noticed that, that ad. And um, here's my quick background. And I kept talking. He said, hold it, wait, wait. This, is, uh, this has been on the street now for eight weeks, and we have six finalists, and this search is over. So we're going to meet with them. Uh, the, the, um, the CEOs on the search committee are going to meet with them tomorrow, so forget about it. This one's over. And I just couldn't believe that that opportunity had passed. Right. I said, can I, you know, can I fax you my, in those days, can I, yeah. can I fax you my resume? He said, you can fax me anything you want. You know, this is over. So I faxed him my resume, and um, the next night, I was at home, really upset that, that this one I missed thought missed this one, and uh, the guy calls and said the search committee didn't like any of the six candidates and wanted a new panel, and I was on it, and so uh, I immediately started reading the Office of Technology Assessments, fourteen hundred page opus on biotechnology, <laughs> to sort of. So, yeah, I mean, you had the basic skills, right, because of the... Political skills and some science and some, background. Yeah, the basic science that could pull you through, but you needed to get up to speed on... Absolutely, and there are two things. Uh, you know, one, I was not up to speed, certainly up to speed on the on the science. And, and secondly, I knew not a single person in the industry. Yeah. Not one. Yeah. Not one. So uh, to make a, a three-month story very, you know, very short, I went through a series of interviews, et cetera, and um, and very fortunately uh, got hired. Now that was the best job I ever had. Really, that's great. Um, I mean, I didn't know. So who founded Bio then? Uh, we did. Well, I mean, uh, something I was we, in place. I mean, there was a group of uh, of CEOs from two prior forerunner trade associations that had been fighting for years between that, the the two the of two them. of them had been rivals. Yeah. Instead of coming together with one voice, there was a rivalry. Uh, so and, and it was really uh, – it, it was not helpful, to say the least, no, no. To, so the, uh, to the industry's interest. They knew that they wanted to form sort of a, a, a dual thing and were not looking for the CEO. Once you're on board, then you sort of put it in place. Well, they didn't exactly tell me that was going to happen. I, it led me to believe it was already done. Uh, um, once I got hired, I realized that it was uh, not done. 
and that there were still big divisions among the staffs didn't like each other. Really? And, I mean, it was, a, well, I mean, it's not untypical of mergers. mergers. Right. right. But it was all there. It was really all there. And uh, essentially, I gave both staffs about a week to cross the bridge. Either your bio uh, or now you're or you're now. Yeah. You're gone. And, um, and some of them stayed and, you know, some of them couldn't. And we started, we started from there with about, I guess, seven or eight employees. And, and how many companies were represented yeah, there? Yeah, probably, a, you know, 80 or 90. Oh, that many? Yeah, but very small, very small companies, almost no revenues. Yep. Um, and no name recognition, I mean, no recognition at all. Members of Congress didn't know what it was, couldn't mm-hmm. spell it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the media was mis- mysterious. And so we really, um, you know, with a very able group of folks, uh, some of whom had been in the previous trade associations and a majority of whom hired later, uh, really felt like it was a startup and starting from scratch. It's fun. And uh, I like that. Yeah. And I also had great support from the CEOs who were sick and tired of the division. Uh, that, you know, one organization would go up to Congress and say potato, the other could say potato, uh-huh. and nothing would happen. Uh, the Congress, they just didn't, couldn't make up their minds who to believe, and just zero got done. So we had to end that. But we had nothing uh, in terms of resources, uh, although there were a whole lot of, you know, a lot of little companies. The largest, of course, were Genentech and Amgen mm-hmm. at the time, I believe. Yeah. Um, no big pharma companies, but... I uh, set out, and getting back to the, what I learned from spec, the Spectre experience, um, every two years, Arlen would visit all 67 of Pennsylvania's counties, right? Every one of them. And right? go, you do a stump speech there or just stop he in? He would go to the Elks or the oh, Hibernians or uh, Ancient Order of Moose or yeah. whatever it was, and also to the local newspaper when there were local newspapers. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he would give a couple of speeches. He'd meet with the county chairs, whether they were Republican or, or Democrat. And he would give interviews to the, to the local reporters or editors or usually one and the same person. Yeah. And so um, I learned from that. And what I did the first couple of years at Bio was to fly to San Francisco, rent a car, and just drive up and down 101 mm-hmm. Silicon Valley, uh, down you know from the city to Mountain View, out to Berkeley, and I would visit as many companies as I could, and actually see their labs, meet their CEOs, meet their people, learn what they were doing, get collect stories to tell of what the industry was actually doing from on the ground. And, perspective. and would you ask them, you know, like what are you, what are your hurdles? What do you need from from Washington in order to to you know populate? This industry, how, how to uh, get over exactly? Yeah. Some of them had IP, you know, intellectual property issues. Some had uh, technical FDA issues, or the whole range uh, of of stuff, and they needed help. And you know, I was benefiting greatly from very low expectations, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of these CEOs hadn't been to Washington since their eighth grade class visiting. Yeah. So the a the level of experience there, and also expectations were very low. And um, and I gave interviews to local media and both trade press and you know the, you know the big newspapers were interested. Like, what is this? We've heard yeah we've heard about it. And uh, you know what's it about? 
And I would call uh, ahead of time, like a, a local radio station that had a talk, uh, a talk show, a call-in show. And I would offer to do a call-in show on biotechnology. And typically the response was, well, if you tell me what it is, we'll consider it. Yeah. We'll do it. And they always, they virtually always said yes. And um, in terms of getting a message out, um, I could, you know, I could do that in a station in Akron, Ohio, that had, there were 6,000 people at rush hour sitting in their cars listening to radio, and I could reach them. So it, it, for, it didn't cost anything. Yep. Yep. So there were a number of, uh, of interesting, shall we say, innovative ways you could do this. But, but I took these, uh, these car, these caravans, you know, just one car, you know, all through California, and, and I, would, I would rent a car in Washington, D.C., or take my own car, and drive up through Baltimore, through Philadelphia, um, all the way through New, you know, through New Jersey uh-huh. and New York, and up Connecticut, up to up to, up to Cambridge, yeah. and along the way, it would take a week or ten days, and along the way, meet with as many companies as I could, as, as many newspapers, journals, biweekly, whatever they were, um, and I would try to convince the CEOs to to join Bio, and it was just on the ground. Polit- politicking, getting to know what their companies were, collecting, again, good stories right. uh, on the ground. And that was a real, that was a real basis, um, on-the-ground basis. You know, at about 5,000 or 10,000-foot altitude, we had, still had no political presence in Washington. Um, very, very few members of Congress have any science background, still. Yep. Level of uh, ignorance and rumor and prevalence of rumor, et cetera, is just uh, they'd Unaware. heard they'd read about uh, killing monarch br- butterflies or yep. uh, you know cloning. Of course, you know we hit we hit some really big uh, crises, you know, with Dolly and right. cloning. So, and those I took as opportunities to explain what we did and what we didn't do. One of the advantages that I did have, which I tell you, is sort of an inside baseball story, is. During Watergate, I met a number of up-and-coming reporters who sort of made their bones during Watergate. Mm-hmm. And by the time I was at Bio, they were now editors, in some cases managing editors, uh-huh. of newspapers. So I had a little bit of a leg up, one, one clear chance. I would ask them, many of them my friends, I said, who's covering biotech for you? Or if I already knew, just said, could you make an introduction? And they would say, you know, they'd give me one clear chance with a reporter. You know, my editor says you're you're you were you were a good guy yeah. during Watergate. Yeah. And so I'd get a chance to establish a relationship with them, and I took every one of those chances. But um, almost every afternoon, uh, I would go home about four o'clock, miss the, cha- uh, the the traffic in Washington, sit at my dining room table, and just take calls. Hmm. Just take calls. As the as the reporters and editors were finishing their stories, I would just take calls and answer their stuff. And, you know, on the record, uh, on background, mm-hmm. or off the record. Yep. And, you know, frankly, I only got screwed twice in 12 years. In, in bad ways? In, uh, in like I, major ways? No. No. But, it, but you just remember that it was... Yeah, I yeah. don't forget. I mean, uh, ways that made me very angry. Do you want to talk about those? You Pardon? don't have to name... You don't need to name the publication. Do you want to talk about those? Did you? Oh, I think it's amazing. I only got the the twice. Yeah, only twice. But what were they? You mentioned uh, something proprietary, or no, 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 no. Um, 
uh, words manipulated um, uh. and questions manipulated without telling me the the story there. I see. Okay. Uh, using using quotes so out of context and that it reversed my meaning, those types of things. Yeah, yeah, that, that would irritate me too, I yeah. think, beyond belief. But yeah. the, the fact that that happened so infrequent, there were just a it's few a Good sign, yeah. yeah. I mean, you must have done thousands and thousands. I did many, I, uncountable, and people, um, you know, treated like professionals. They were, Yeah. and uh, we had a, a, a part of American democracy, and we had a good relationship, and it, and it worked mutually beneficial. Uh, so I looked this up on Open Secrets. The earliest recording of bio-giving, I think, it was 1998, and it was maybe 1.7 million or something. And it went to 8-point-something, I think 8.6 in 2010, and it's come down since then. But that's a, that's a big jump. Um, yeah. You know, as the industry has grown, do you think that that was something that they needed to do to help sort of establish their voice in D.C.? Inevitable. It was inevitable. I mean, uh, eventually, uh, uh, we got big enough that we grew. We we were growing in the in the nineties at uh, twenty to thirty percent a year. Wow! Uh, in terms of both staff and revenues, and what in a couple of years we may have hit forty percent. Um, people were joining, new companies were being established, and they sort of they, they trusted us and some in, in, in to do their politics. And to do some of their communications mm-hmm. that were too were awkward uh, for, for them to handle, that were issues bigger than their individual company, and also bio. We started um, not just doing their politics and their communications, but we started business meetings, the partnering and, meetings. Yeah, yeah, the bio. And we grew the main bio meeting, mm-hmm. as, you know, as we talked earlier, up to about twenty. 22,000. It's a big. I mean, you can only hold that meeting in certain cities. Then, oh they, yeah, you have to have a space You're large limited, enough. Right? Yeah, yeah. And for those of us on the staff, it was like an out-of-body experience for five days. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah, and um, and, and fun in some ways. But I, I used to give tell people to take. 15 days off afterwards. Tiring, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can't, you don't think you're, you're not normal right now, so yeah. take, take your time off. But we built those franchises, and so whatever the reasons for joining, and some companies were not so interested in the politics, um, and maybe they, they had competent people doing their communications, wanted to keep it that way, but they were interested in, um, in rubbing elbows with some of the bigger companies or having meeting opportunities that they otherwise would not have. Mm-hmm. So tell me, because this is, uh, you know, from the outside, I'm not sure really what happens with campaign contributions or just lobbying money in general. I mean, what does Bio do with the money? Does, does it go to educate, um, you know, politicians on what biotech is? That means travel. That means, I, I don't know. What happens generally is that you have a fundraiser, an event, typically. And so it could be a breakfast. We're here in New York right now. Uh-huh. I remember breakfast we had with Charlie Rangel, uh-huh. right? And what you do is you raise money, and then you go to some hotel, and you have a breakfast, and you have the CEOs or the representatives from that area, from New York, for example, or wherever area, explain what the you know, you have three of them or five of them, explain what the companies do, and their companies do, mm-hmm. and what, and I would give a little overview of what the industry's all about, et cetera, and we're we really, you know, you, you know, Representative Rangel, you're Chairman Rangel, you're on this committee or that committee, and we have these intellectual property issues, and here's our perspective, and we could use your, you know, we really would like your support, and you know, you end up, you know, 
working over 5,000, 10,000, 20,000. We were small. I mean, the big organizations, you know, these really big contributions. But that's the thing. We, so the money is actually, you don't slide as a briefcase across the table. No. Wrangle. No, I mean, you, know, you have the to money... write a, you know, a, a publicly acknowledged check from the PAC, uh-huh. you know, to the campaign. I see. So, so it's all campaign contributions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's the, yeah, that... Oh, yeah. Well, of course, I mean, of course, I'm a former prosecutor. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah of course. Things, other things happen. We didn't, we didn't do that. Right. So that, that sort of briefcase thing pr- probably still exists for sure out there, but most... The briefcase thing has existed since uh, 4000 B.C., since, right? Since the first briefcase, these things Since the existed. first briefcase. Um, okay, well, that's interesting. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's as the as BIO's membership has grown and its importance has grown, and, and, and quite frankly, when you stepped away and Greenwood came in, you know, they became an even more powerful lobbying force. That was the first thing that everybody noticed right. from the outside. It became sort of... When you were there, it was sort of like a... Um, almost like a family shop that everyone knew. And then it was like, we are now an official lobbying group in, in D.C. I think to Bio's benefit, I mean, to the so community's benefit. Yeah. I do, I do too. So let's talk about it. I think I read someplace that you said when, when Bio was formed, you needed to establish a voice for the industry, which I think you did quite well. What's, what's, what is Bio still doing today? Is that still their main goal? Is it, is it to educate? Yeah, I think they have a stat. I think, um, I think they have a voice. They, they, clear, they really do. And... Um, uh, Jim Greenwood is someone I knew, of course, very well when he was in Congress. Yeah. And uh, one of my first trips by car around in the, in the, in the north, I got caught in a snowstorm in Langhorne, Pennsylvania, and I spent a couple hours. He was stuck, too, in his district office. Mm-hmm. And we put our feet up and spent a couple hours together, I think, in the first year of bio. And then um, much later, you know, after I would um, announced that I was going to retire, uh, you know, he called and said, would you think I should be interested in this? And I said, you sure should. Yeah. And recognizing the evolution. I mean, I love startups. I love, you know, I love the startup atmosphere. I love knowing every person on the staff. And I could sort of do that up to about 50 people. Yeah. And that's what I enjoy the most. And once it got to the point where we just had to grow in terms of uh, staff, in terms of reach, in terms of political contribution, and clout, um, yet, you know, but you're still, you're up against other major lobbies. Right. So you have to compare your clout no matter, you know, if we can give eight times more than we did in my day, you still have lobbies and super, now you have super PACs right. out there that just uh, drown them in money. Very unfortunate for the country, actually. There's a footnote here. Uh, Supreme Court decisions, uh, that corporations are people, yeah, and free speech. You can give as much money as you. Have. This is this is. Uh, it's not one person, one vote anymore. It's one, one million or one billion, one vote. Right. So what? So bad. So we can talk about. Okay. It's actually interesting to talk about the the political environment these days, right? Um, contentious. I, I I don't know. I mean, everyone says it's more contentious now than it's ever been. I don't know that that's the case. You know but, what? That is the case. I'm venturing a real opinion here. Let's let's have it. So and and why is that the case? Well, it, it, it's I mean, complex. It's some complex reasons that 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 I think once you, we hear them, we all we all know. I mean, twenty four hour news cycle, the politicization, the media. Now we're we're more like some European media where the newspaper was a, a social democrat paper, uh-huh. right, or a conservative uh-huh. paper, and now our media is lined up. They're really. Uh, 
political parties, right? Essentially, and you know they drive polarization and the extremes. You know we've been through this. I'm no, you know, I I know as much about it as everybody, right? Um, but it really is unfortunate. I mean, when I was inspector's office, we worked with anybody, everybody. He was a moderate Republican, a now extinct yep. species, um, and and I was registered independent when I was president of bio. And people, you know, couldn't figure out well, which side. It didn't matter. Yeah. And we would negotiate and get the support of uh, no matter what party you were or what state you were you were in. Yeah, Jim being a moderate Republican too, or he was. That's when correct. He was actually, so that he was another great person to take over the the helm there. Yeah. And so, what do what do you think that Bio needs to do? If if you have an opinion on this, I don't know. G- going forward, what is their main goal now? I you know I live in Idaho, and. Uh, I, when I left Washington, I, I'd spent 31 years in Washington. I like to say I got paroled, uh-huh. and now I'm out in the country. Mm-hmm. And I'm still, as we can go into, I'm still active as uh, director on boards and all biotech. All my activities are professional activities are bio, are biotech. Mm-hmm. But I, when I left, I decided, you know, let's we're cutting it. I don't I don't go to bio meetings. Yeah, you know, I'm out of there. Jim run, Jim Greenwood's running the place. Right, and. Um, and I am, I'm happy not to be in the particular political environment that he's now having to swim in, right? That pool. So I'm, I'm not an expert on, on where they are exactly where they are on every issue or such. But I think the industry needs to maintain just a distinct identity and make make it clear. Just as we, and this is hard harder to do because of the blending of with, big pharma yeah, exactly. with biotech. Yeah. And now the lines are indistinguishable, okay? It was easier, I'm, I must say, easier when we started bio mm-hmm. to draw that distinction. And I know it upset the pharma people until they decided to join. What, you mean it upset them to have this division between small biotechs and yeah, big pharma? Yeah, you know, some you know, big pharma exec said, you know, uh, you know, they're making the, 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 you know, he was complaining about something I had said. You know, these biotech people are creating miracles, Miracle drugs, and uh, you know, and we're doing uh, chewing gum and aspirin. Right, we're selling band aids. Yeah. So, okay. but but you know, distinct, insofar as to let the 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 vigor and the particular culture of the small companies and the startups. That's the identity that continuously needs to be captured and recaptured. And you know, bigger companies are going to want to drive the bus. Yeah. That's natural, normal. But, you know, they have pharma, and, you know, I just think maintaining a powerful core identity of young, not necessarily only young, but young, small, it's a cultural. Right. So keeping that culture of a young, sort of scrappy startup, doesn't have a lot of money, virtual these days sometimes, as opposed to we're huge drug development companies. And that's hard to do. It's very hard to maintain it. Over time, you got to grow up. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you go from, you know, I think I, I left... When I left, I would characterize as a young adult or almost maybe adolescent, still adolescent, or maybe young adult uh, stage organization. But now you're grown up. You're on some boards now, Life Science Foundation. Yeah. Uh, when, I, did, when did you, how, how long after your parole from bio did you join Life Science Foundation? Well, it was about, four, it, it didn't get formed until about four or five years after I retired. Uh-huh. So I joined when it got or when it got organized and 
I believe, just like in the, in the beginning of bio, when the, the, the people who worked in the, in the industry didn't know it was an industry, didn't know that they were distinct, uh-huh. and that, you know, there was a question whether we're really like junior pharma or whether we have a distinct identity at all. And they now know that they do. And now, 20 years later, it's important to capture the histories of the pioneers of the industry right. for various, you know, any obvious reasons, health, death, um, memory, mm-hmm. and uh, capturing their oral video histories, documenting them. And um, that is the, the basic research scholarly uh, effort by the Life Sciences Foundation and once captured and transcribed and processed and archived and all those things that responsible organizations need to do mm-hmm. with significant materials to repurpose them for education, uh, everything from you know blogs, social media, uh-huh. scholarly articles, uh, quotes on issues as they arise. And that's essentially the, the mission and what, what is happening at Life Sciences Foundation. It's, uh, it's, it's grant funded? No, it's funded by individuals and corporations who are, you know, some of the pioneer organizations, and we're now into the next generation of of pioneers. Yeah, you know, and uh, as historians, some historians have told me, one historian in particular said that, you know, three hundred years from now, the last thirty years in biotechnology, in biology, and the science will be like the Renaissance the last 30 years, these 30 years. Yeah. I mean, the, the impact it's going to have on the rest of the 21st century and beyond. Huge. Yeah, huge impact. And, and so I believe that historian. You know, one of the many interesting things about the biotech village, the, the group, is their willingness to tell stories on themselves, the highs and the lows, you know, the, the, the clinical failures just getting flattened. Uh, you know, in the science, yeah. uh, nature just is not working yeah. for us. And then the, the markets kick in and roll you over again. Uh, but their willingness to tell those stories are instructive, both from an operational point of view, from new CEOs' mistakes. And I'm, I'm seeing the recycling of the same old mistakes. One of, one of the things I could do as a board member say, uh, you know, I recognize the direction you're headed that's mistake 47D, which I made, <laughs> yeah. and here's I've, where it I've leads. Seen this. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, do you have any uh, any of those like favorite stories from early biotech? I mean, one of mine. It's not. It might even be a rumor. I don't know. But when Amgen was first formed, it was formed in Thousand Oaks because it was a. At the time, there was really nothing built up around it, and if they had some sort of blow up in the lab or some sort of breach, mm. it would blow out to out to sea instead of into into homes. Is that actually true? I don't know. Yeah, I love that story. Though, yeah. That they, the science was so unknown. They thought, well, whatever we're doing, we want it to go out to, out to sea. Yeah, you know, you want, some, you want some really fun, weird stories. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to tell them to you right now. <laughs> but what to do is take a look at the business plans of some of the early companies. They are embarrassingly amusing. In, I mean, in, in what ways? You mean... Uh, the... We're going to use... Uh, Plant X to you know produce this in oncology, and then use I mean just things that we now know are not at all possible. Quite ridiculous. Yeah, but they're part of an actual business plan, and they're written down, and they're hidden someplace because 
the CEO reread them at some point and said, bury this. Yeah, yeah. Right. You know, and the, the kinds of things that they'll do is at a bio meeting, and you won't see this. I don't, I, I, in my years with Spectre, et cetera, didn't see this with other industries where the CEOs will get up and there'll be three of them on stage or five, and they'll say, how I screwed up my last company. And then one of them will say, no, I did this wrong, that wrong, this wrong. He said, no, I can beat that. Yeah. Here's what I did. And it's so instructive for the, the audience, but it's also just such a great sense of openness and yeah. relief. I mean, just be able to tell those stories on yourself. I want, I want to ask you, so how did you end up in, in Idaho? Uh, I, you know, grew up in Philadelphia and family always went to the shore, the Jersey Shore, when I was growing up and uh-huh. I hate the beach. And so when I became an adult and my you know, family, we were family, my own nuclear family, deciding where to go to summer, on summer vacations, let's get as far away from the beach as we could. Into a landlocked state. So, yeah, we go to Idaho, the Sawtooth Mountains, the Northern Rockies. And, um, and vacation there, as inconvenient as that was, you know, like 2,200 miles away. Yeah. Um, and started a tradition of about uh, 25 years of summer vacations out there. And then when decided to leave bio and leave, actually leave Washington after uh-huh. 31 years, as I said, um, to, to actually move out there and experience small town life. But the winters have to be... Um, Brutal. Yeah. And long. How do you... Uh... How do you handle that? I travel a lot, actually, and the first couple of months of winter are just fine, crisp and clear, and I snowshoe, and it's a very athletic, healthy place. Yeah. Love it Mm -hmm. uh, for that, and uh, relative low stress and no complaint zone. People are very happy to be out there in the mountains. They're beautiful. Yeah. And um, so it's a healthy, healthy place. And now my uh, children, my grown children, uh, my son and his family live in Geneva, Switzerland. My daughter and her family live in Berkeley. California, so I'm going. I'm split any which way, so I'm going to be doing a lot of traveling. So the two kids, does either one work in in biotech? Uh, my son is a uh, global health guy, who was director of global health for the National Security Council uh, in Washington until a few months ago, and is now uh, head of strategy and policy for the Global Fund in uh-huh. Geneva for malaria, uh, HIV, and and uh, TB. But it's uh, you know it's a healthy place. The winters are very are long. By by the time you get to April and May, you really do want to be uh, somewhere else. But uh, you know I spent 30 years in Philadelphia, 31 years in Washington, and now small town life is actually quite appealing. Yeah. We've talked about what bio has done well, and we talked about mistakes. What, what were there any big mistakes? You know maybe bio under your leadership took the wrong direction, or you wish that you could have you know done it differently than you did. Yeah, it's a tough one. That is, that is a, uh, yeah, I mean, on a very personal basis, it was, um, in Washington, even though it was more congenial than the Washington of today, it was still um, just a very demanding 24-7 hard plow push. And what I came to regret was uh, every time I didn't do it frequently, but I regret every single time I lost my temper. It just never, um, it, it just never went better. You mean it, it made things worse. You'd be in a meeting, you'd be having some conversation, and they would. Yeah, someone. It, it, I, again, I didn't. I mean, I, I don't. I don't lose my temper very often. But looking back, if I were to see seven or eight times when I just really got 
outraged or enraged. It just made didn't make things better. Yeah, you look did, back and think that that was a mistake. That was a mistake. Yeah. yeah. Every yeah. time I, I, you know, whenever I did that, and uh, you know, I never did it publicly, but it, it just didn't work with staff or. Um, you know, there was one. There was one White House meeting that was supposed to be confidential, and uh, and a couple of occasions like that, where uh, someone would press an employee wanted me to hire somebody, and it was just an outrageous demand, or to take a favor favoritism with mm-hmm. one company, and I just for one or number of reasons just lost it, and that was just never a good yeah. idea. It seemed yeah. that in some cases. It won the day, but it lost the week and the month and the yeah, year. Yeah, oh, interesting. That's that's good. So that's if that's your main complaint, though, that's a pretty good run. It was, a, yeah, it was a it was a pretty good run. I was, I was, uh, you know, I, I did a little private memoir recently for my kids and grandkids, and I called it "Lucky Man." I felt lucky. Listen, I uh, appreciate you coming in. Appreciate the talk. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Brady. Oh man, wasn't that wasn't that interesting? Just even listening to this while I edited it, um, you know, I I found it interesting again, and I already I already knew the conversation. I was there the first time it happened. So thanks to Carl Felbaum for coming in, and thanks for running Bio for twelve years. You did a you did a great job. You can find more of these podcasts on Stitcher, iTunes, and Nature Biotechnologies podcast homepage, including the full archives. I'd like to thank you for listening. Uh, thanks to the Midwest Quiet for use of their music for this podcast. That is it for now. Until the next episode, you've been listening to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. Goodbye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Traffic jams tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, 
which is music to his ears. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.